Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Welcome, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture. I am so elated to bring you this episode because at least when I think of freedom, about self-emancipation, about sovereignty in the Caribbean, you know, I think we also have to really talk about the history of the community we're speaking about today, and that's the Maroons. And so to join us in this discussion, we have a very special guest, His Excellency Chief Richard Curry, Head of State of Cockpit Country. And for those who may be unfamiliar, Cockpit Country is in Western Jamaica and stretches across parishes Trelawney, St. Elizabeth, St. James, St. Anne, Manchester, and Clarendon. So welcome, Chief Curry. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Definitely. Thank you. I have to give a big senti shout out because we're in our building today. So it's a very proud moment for me um, and for the Strictly Facts community. So jumping right into our discussion today, as I mentioned to you before, my motivation for starting the podcast was really that, you know, many of us, whether they're in the Caribbean or in the diaspora, don't know much of our history, whether that's Caribbean history at large, Jamaican history, much less maroon history. And so in your words, could you give us a brief sort of history lesson of the maroons and their integral part of shaping Jamaica's story? Okay, again, thank you for having me. And, you know, it goes without saying that any opportunity to share some information and discuss the history of our people, it's always a pleasure to add um, the the background that I've had um, living as a Maroon and moving across the land and accessing different opportunities in order to uh, self-actualize, you know, visions, plans that to me were integral to becoming a man. And that might have stemmed from knowing every person who I grew up around and knew as a maroon or as a man um, at the time who was a maroon. There was always a level of independence, of freedom, of um, drive, of, you know, diligence, you know, hard work to attain betterment of self, you know, and I think when we've heard the stories of Nani or Kojo and who the Maroons were, uh, large chunks of that information would have been left out of the the narrative and the the, the history that we've come to learn has swayed far uh, from facts. And when I say facts, I'm talking about information that are held tightly by our ancestors, which have been passed down through decades of family and household traditions that have brought us to where we are today. The missing cue for me, as far as history is concerned, is the identity of who the Maroons really are. And why is that important? It's very important because rights and all its assets, I would call it thereof, flows from the identity of the people. And for us, we have been told that the Maroons were runaway slaves. And for the large part of it, we believe that everyone who took to the hills and lived in the hills and fought this war for 80 odd years were all runaway slaves. It's a false connotation. It's a false, you know, repetitive misnomer that denies us or, or attempts to strip us 
of our identity. And what then people say, you know, are you saying, are you saying that Maroons are not Africans and the Maroons are, are other people are separate from us? No. What I'm saying is that the Maroons represent a collective of freedom fighters, persons who at the time of oppression, at the time of incursion, decided to fight to protect and defend their land and their rights. And this conglomerate eventually grew as a result of the acceptance of many other runaway slaves who escaped the plantations to various rebellions or raids, whatever it was, and formed the communities that you know stretched right across the land. It's important to note that the Maroons were the Awa, the, the AKA, the Taino, who resided here on the land prior to Columbus arriving here, the same copper-toned, brown-haired Negroes that he described were the same persons who defended the land and aided those who ran away, showed them where to hide, showed them what was edible, showed them where to find water. And through their years, and I should say centuries, and intricate knowledge of the land and the seas, they were able to navigate fortify and defend the territory, forcing the British to submit in the war, right? Which raged, I repeat, for 83 years. So today, who are the Maroons? The Maroons have been, a, I'd say, a defamed part of the true history of the land because most of what mainstream would have consumed as it relates to who the Maroons were, were that the Maroons were traitors. The Maroons turned over their black fellows to the British. And there have been many other nasty things that have been said towards the Maroons without people quite understanding and knowing the history of the land, of the Maroons, of even their own identity and what it meant to have defeated what was the mightiest militia in the Western Hemisphere at the time. It wasn't Bushmen. These were tactical, skillful warriors who knew that what they were doing. So a lot that has not been told ought to know, you know, be known. And persons should be now willing to open their minds to just what if there is just a little bit more that I haven't heard or seen or read. Let's pay some attention to documents which we would have found in archives, you know, being sealed and put away for quite some time some perhaps not to ever be seen again right because the information which they contain could be considered damning to many actions of post-colonial governments or institutions to the detriment of indigenous people we the maroons have faced quite a bit of self inflicted deprivation and in another sense forced or directed to a general assimilation which means giving up the identity and therefore forfeiting the estate that was left by our ancestors and my position as chief has been as would any other elected in the position to uphold and honor the treaty of 1738 
honor the legacy of not just the born, but also the unborn as stated in the treaty. To do anything contrary would be a violation of such. And I am merely putting forward my position as successor to Kojo to establish the sovereignty of who we are. Thank you so much for that just very necessary summary of the Maroon people. I think there are a number of things that came to mind as, as you spoke, right? The, first off, the, the necessity to clarify the story. As you said, there are definitely many misconceptions or many sort of mishistories. I feel like the story is, is more complicated or um, definitely there, there marks a way of sort of disempowering the legacy of the Maroon people. And even when you think of the word Maroon itself, right, it's sort of um, epistemology, if I may, is complicated in that it was really used to sort of denigrate the magnitude of their power, right? The magnitude of their story. Um, and so as you sort of mentioned, there's a series of wars that the Maroons fight. The first Maroon War sort of ends with the treaty, as you mentioned. So could you talk a bit more about the accomplishments, even stipulations, and the challenges that arose from this moment? The treaty that was signed in 1738 was one of peace and friendship, right? It's one of, I believe, two blood treaties that were ever signed. And treaties, we know, never die. And the essence of a treaty establishes one sovereign recognizing another. And in doing so, agreeing on to how they operate now on this common space of land. If you look at maritime law and how the laws of the seas and the relations between governments are established, majority are done through treaties. Now, the violation of a treaty is considered a major thing because your word is your honor. And if it goes as far as blood being shared and consumed at the point of agreeing uh, to the terms of the treaty, signifies in history a major, a monumental occasion that took place between a favored nation, which is now the British uh, monarch, and the Maroons of Jamaica, as we know, um, the land in its indigenous state. So what has happened since 1738? The war ended physically, but went into another phase in that it went into a literal or more documented legal war, if you want to call it that, whereby the then established government under the crown would have been overseeing the estate of the crown on the land. And the respect between the British and the Maroons were maintained up until about the abolition of slavery, which took place in 1834, but didn't quite become effective until 1838. Now, very shortly after, we had several acts of parliament, which in essence tried to subvert or tried to undermine the rights of the Maroons in that the 1842 Act of Repeal what it essentially did was to remove the act that invoked the Maroon Treaty, first and foremost. Why was that done? Because many of the terms of the treaty or the paragraphs 
of the treaty made reference to slavery and uh, runaways and captures and Negroes and the essence of the abolition of slavery meant these terms um, became repugnant, no longer you know, applied or you know, were necessary. What ought to have happened essentially were then another sit-down between the Maroons and the British to hammer out where do we go in terms of the agreements that were made in 1738. Now, it was a few incidences that took place shortly after that in which deliberations were still ongoing where several attempts were made by planters, you know, former plantation owners, now overseers, attempting to, to take back some of the, the lands that were ceded in the war. And when I say ceded, meaning, so if you look at the lay of the land at the time, when they talk about what part of the land belongs to the Maroon, it didn't identify a border. What it said, the Maroons were free to hunt, gather within three miles of a British settlement, which again supports my initial statement that having won the war, the land was not passed, the land was not ceded. So move the clock forward. At the time when the Maroon Wars ended, one would have understand that a lot of resources would have been expended to finance the war, to keep the war going and to sustain the people. The British controlled sugar and sugar was approximately 50% of their entire wealth at the time. And Jamaica was a huge part of that. It was the crown jewel of British commerce economy. And we were left worse off than the British because being the kings of sugar and having so much wealth being circulated here amongst the, the planter society um, meant they were still able to rebuild. The British, you know, had financing that was available and they were far more wealthier at the time in terms of being able to uh, rebuild and come out of the war looking more a nation established on the land. And the Maroons essentially kept to themselves as we have always maintained the separateness of the Maroons and where our administrative headquarters, as you would put it, contractually would, would reside. And that's in the cockpit mountains. It's where the British never ever uh, ventured. It's where they never ever were able to penetrate and it was a deadly place in their records. So when you look at how we feared coming out of the war, our people were left marooned, as it said, and essentially um, not having access to proper, you know, um, infrastructure, there were no roads, um, you know, health facilities, all that was very limited and rationed. We became very desolate and poor and survived really off the land, which in its abundance provided um, sufficiently for families that kept us here for generations leading to where we are today. Now, the challenge that we face is one where we have become so entangled um, not understanding these important aspects of our history in terms of our identity and who we are and what that represents, that 
you struggle amongst even your fellows sometimes, right? The arguments that have been put forward by the colonialists or other oppressors um, that have been absorbed and taken as doctrine um, when you can provide additional evidence as I have found myself um, being able to come up with concrete information showing that the people who they say we are actually deeper and richer than the actual story um, projects itself. So uh, I find it as my solemn duty in trying to understand what my treaty meant to me and my people and why is it that we were still living in the way that we were living without running water, without roads and having 40% of the island's fresh water emanating from our springs was, I was travesty, I couldn't make sense of it. So in digging and digging, I went beneath the information that was at the surface and my findings and my connections have led me to the truth that I now bear. And what I intend to do with that is to economically liberate us as a people because for us and for the arguments of sovereignty, there comes great responsibility of being able to take care of the people, being able to take care of the nation, being able to uplift, empower, and mobilize the people. And it is not an easy feat by any means, but nonetheless, it's nothing short of what our entitlements are. And the significance of our treaty and standing as a free man, right? standing in a state of freedom forever is an important connotation that cannot be overlooked if you say you are a maroon. Thank you so much for that. Totally, as you mentioned, just the story in itself has gone through a series of convolutions, just way more in depth than I think oftentimes the history is told. And I mean, you definitely sort of got to one of my later questions on your hopes for the future, but we can talk about that a bit more. In going with your point of knowing who we are, I wanted you to maybe speak a bit briefly to the ways in which Maroons have also impacted Jamaican culture. Um, it's not just this sort of simple story, but whether it's through language, through food, you know, what are some of the influences that these sovereign peoples have had on Jamaica long term? Well, forever uh, the conversations about, you know, who is a maroon and, you know, where, how do you distinguish a maroon from uh, a regular Jamaican and who is a Jamaican versus a maroon, right? Again, it's not about uh, separation. It's really about the importance of one's identity. A lot of our culture in terms of our food, let's take, for example, jerk. Right, we celebrate jerk chicken. You know, it's one of the greatest ever creations. I agree. Uh, <laughs> right, and it originated from just the people of the forest finding means and ways of preserving the meat and preserving their 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 hunt, but also adding you know flavor to the pot or to the meal, and that came about strictly through the Arawaks, and that is documented. Right, so when they say jerk is from Jamaica, let's take it deeper. Jerk is from the maroon, you know. The the dress, a lot of the dress, I would say, has been influenced by a Western culture nowadays. Traditionally, our people would dress, you know, with simple flowing garbs and covering themselves from the sun and 
you know, moving about with head wraps and one would call it turban right now. The mode of how we, we distinguished ourselves has somewhat changed, but what has not changed is the creativity which stemmed from the, the depth of the people who surrounded themselves as the Maroons. There are varying cultures, varying peoples from different lands, different geographies who came here and aligned to fight the common enemy. Bits and pieces of each of those cultures have emboldened themselves across the land. And the Dashiki and the, the Kente and the Afro-generated um, interest in fashion stemmed from, of course, the descendants of many of who joined and in arms with the Maroons. Thank you for that. As you were talking, I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, this history is not just solely found in Jamaica, right? There are what has been called maroon populations across, whether that's the Caribbean. So, you know, you might think of the Garifuna in St. Vincent. You could stretch down to South America and think of the Quilombo in Brazil. And then it even gets further when you really dive deep into the Jamaican maroon population who was forcibly removed to Nova Scotia and Canada, and then later moved to Sierra Leone. So what are some of the ways that all of these different communities keep in contact with one another today? So each community um, has its head, its chief. So what typically existed was a conference that ensured all the chiefs had constant dialogue and we were looking at how we move forward you know, in collective endeavors as far as the maroon population was considered across the land. The body that was together at that point was known as the Secretariat, the Maroon Secretariat, and that body has since been dissolved. Now, the reforming of that body is what is currently taking place, and the structure is each member, um, including myself, would have a position on that body. And the collective discussion is around managing and ensuring the legacy of the Maroons continue and is preserved in its fullest. So that is something that continues. And outside of that, each community has its own yearly festival or what we call annual recognition um, of the heritage and legacies of their people. And the upcoming one for a compound January 6th is which we celebrate the signing of the treaty as well as Captain Kudjo's birthday. We typically invite all the chiefs slash colonels to these ceremonies in recognizing uh, their importance and also their contribution to the Maroon communities. Thank you so much. Yes, people definitely have to check out the ceremonies in January. Um, and as my last and final favorite question, of course, what are some of your favorite examples of how, you know, marine history shows up in contemporary popular culture? When you look at Bookman, Dutty Bookman, as you know him, who went and actually assisted the Haitians in fighting a revolution against the French, what Bookman signified at the time as an indigenous man who sworn allegiance to the indigenous army to protect the land is the same spirit 
that we see in many of our legacy bearers on the land, whether in living spirit or watching among us with our ancestors, people like Bob Marley, people like Usain Bolt, people who have gone against the odds to make a claim and state their position openly. You know, Marcus Garvey, mm-hmm. Leonard Howell, all these people who saw more than the average man and felt more than the average man, but was not afraid to express and show it where it mattered. Oyago, stay tuned for Strictly Fact Sounds, where we connect our history to pop culture. What is a Strictly Facts episode without a little music? Pairing with Chief Curry's highly informative discussion of the Maroons and their spirit as evoked throughout Jamaican culture, you absolutely have to listen to the 1992 album, Drums of Defiance, Maroon music from the earliest free Black communities of Jamaica. The album features 35 recordings of traditional Maroon music spanning across the island and the different drums and style of drumming used to highlight their enduring connections to their African and Indigenous ancestry. And of course, how could I not mention the countless songs that pay homage to Maroon leaders, like Queen Nanny of the Maroons, the island's only national heroine, as well as Captain Kudjo of the Leeward Maroons. One of my personal favorites, Great Queens of Africa by Rastafari poet, musician, and educator, Muda Baruka, calls for all of us to search our history, including knowing about Queen Nanny, who helped fight against the British. Another favorite is Black Uhuru's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, or otherwise known as Dreadlocks Coming for Dinner. It is a remix of the 70s original, this time calling for all Rastas to live as one while calling on the spirit of ancestors like Captain Kudjo in agreement. When was the first time you heard Queen Nanny or Captain Kudjo mentioned in a song? Let us know some of your favorites on social media or send us a voice note to be featured in an upcoming episode. Thank you so much, Chief Curry. It was such a pleasure having you join our discussion today. Please let our listeners know how they can support and follow your initiatives. Thank you. So you can follow me on Twitter at Chief Richard Curry, also on Instagram at Chief Richard Curry, and GoFundMe projects by Chief Richard Curry. You know, I thank everyone for their support. And, you know, if there's more that you want to know, please check out my Instagram account. There's a lot of content and information there that should help others uh, deepen their understanding and position as to where our posture stands at the moment. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chief Curry. And as always, thank you to our audience for listening. You can find that information in our show notes and on our syllabus and on our website. We hope you enjoyed this episode and little more, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.